2: Welcome, everybody, to Finding Hermes. This is episode four. I hope, like me, you're ready to put all your cards on the table and ready to walk through some doors. With us, we have, or I have, the pleasure of having my friend and colleague, Brian Stanford. Brian, thanks for coming on Finding Hermes. Thanks for having me, Miguel. I'm honored to be here pleasure is all mine well let's go on a journey your journey of finding hermes if you would and i know it's always a loaded question i think in uh, AA they talk about where i've been how did i get but how did i get out why am i here uh but it's always important but could you tell us maybe what were the uh the atmosphere or the context in which Brian Stanford grew up and then had his fall. And then we can talk about, talk about your fall and redemption, your hero's journey and out of Plato's cave. Use your esoteric metaphor as you would. Sure, sure. So I, I grew up, I'm um, 47 years
3: old. I grew up in a suburb of Houston uh, in Spring, Texas, uh, middle class white family. Both my parents were public school teachers. Uh, Had one younger sister and um, uh, grew up as a punk rock kid, discovered skateboarding and the Sex Pistols pretty early on, uh, which I like to joke, both saved and destroyed my life uh, at the same time. Um, And grew up with a, in a very liberally minded household. My mother was uh, fairly religious, and my father was pretty militantly atheist and a, a socialist and kind of angry Vietnam vet, um, a free thinker, someone who always challenged me to have my own opinions and look at you know, the myriad sides of various issues. Uh, so I feel like I got some, some healthy spirituality from my mom and some healthy skepticism and critical mind from my dad. Uh, And I guess when I was around 14 years old at a a Barnes and Noble bookstore just browsing through the occult section because it seemed kind of spooky or edgy. And I was a kind of an edgy kid and I found, um, is it Donald Michael Craig? I I can never remember the combination of of, uh, his name, but the famous American occultist died a few years back, but wrote Modern Magic. It was like 12 lessons in high magic, and um, I saved up some of my money and bought it, Uh, and that was, I guess, kind of my launch into the spiritual world. Um, I would practice the LBRP in my bathrobe uh, with a pilfered kitchen knife and candle uh, in the middle of the night and uh, got quickly interested in philosophy kind of grew up on kung fu movies was always into martial arts thought i'd like to be a shaolin monk because that seemed pretty cool um that made me want to start investigating buddhism and then one auspicious day when i was about 16 years old i guess i ran across the hari krishnas at a uh, street festival in downtown houston and they had a book that had the buddha on it and i thought ah these guys must be Buddhists. There's an image of the Buddha. Let me go ask them about Buddhism. And they gave me a plea, uh, free plate of food and told me to come by the temple. If I wanted to talk about Buddhism and I don't know how much people here know about the Hari Krishnas, but, um, in their scheme of the world, Krishna, all the other gods are a manifestation of Krishna. So when I got to the temple, they were like, yeah, yeah, Buddha's really cool. Let us tell you about Krishna. Um, and from sixteen to my early twenties, I was deeply involved in the Hari Krishna movement. Uh, lived in and out of the temple uh, at that time, late eighties, early nineties. The Hari Krishnas had a real big push into into punk rock music and were kind of uh, evangelizing to a lot of straight edge, hardcore kids, which I definitely was. Um, and so was in, involved in the in the Hari Krishna temple uh, was constantly flirting with becoming a, a brahmachari or a monk, but could never quite give up my attachment to women. Um, and then one day in my early twenties, I was hanging out at the temple and the main guru called me in and was like, okay, Bhakti Brian, you know, you're not, you're obviously not cut out to be a monk. So, um, here's what we're going to do. You're going to marry so-and-so. And and he pointed to a woman in another young devotee in the room. He's like, you're going to marry her. Um, we're going to set you up at the house three doors away from the temple. You're going to sell books. She's going to work in the kitchen. You'll have kids. It it'll, it'll be great. And he basically just laid out to me what my life was about to be as a, as a devotee of this guru. And I left the temple and didn't come back, uh, for many, many years. It it just completely freaked me out. It it scared me to death. Uh, and uh, uh, caused me to kind of question everything that was being taught there. And then from there, I bounced around. I still kind of wanted to be a monk and lived in a Zen monastery for a while, lived in some different urban um, meditation centers, uh, and along the way, got uh, addicted to heroin. Um, (laughs) I was also reading a lot of Burroughs and the Beats and all of that kind of stuff and smoking weed and taking psychedelics. And, uh, but I've always been someone who pushes towards the edge and heroin definitely seemed like the edge. And, um, uh, at that time you're old enough to remember that was like when all the grunge stuff was happening and, you know, perversely heroin was making this comeback into the culture. Uh, and, uh, I got very deeply, uh, addicted and involved in, in, uh, heroin dealing and heroin selling and Drug dealing and selling guns, and just kind of went down this whole rabbit hole of pretty hardcore um, outlaw life. Uh, and it is really something I wanted. I mean i I fully I, you know i I think of it now as the gnostic urge, is what I kind of call it like i I definitely recognize that the setup or the way that the setup of the culture was being presented to me was hollow and that there was really no meaning in it, and that the meaning had to be found outside of the boundaries. And, uh, uh, and so that's what I was trying to do. And, and oddly, out of all the heroin-addicted friends that I knew, I was also the only one that was meditating and reading sutras and chanting mantras and um, living mm-hmm. in temple. Terrible- <laughs> yeah, it was a really strange, um, it was a very, very strange life. Uh, And I lived that way as an addict for about 10 years, um, still deeply pursuing the spiritual path. And um, kind of after 10 years of that and just being in various desperate situations, um, I had gotten in some trouble with the law. I was on the run. The police were looking for me. I was kind of moving amongst cities in Texas, trying to stay one step ahead of things. And uh, got the idea that I needed to try to get out of the country, and uh, that I needed to generate some money. Uh, by this point, I had stopped using street drugs. I was on methadone. I was I was definitely trying to get away from the drugs, but I was addicted. I'd kind of ruined myself for any kind of normal job. I was facing some pretty petty charges in hindsight, but I was just too scared to turn myself in. I had some for my arrest. Um, uh, my, my family was really trying to convince me to just surrender to the police, but I couldn't do it. I was too scared of, of going to jail. And I really felt trapped. Um, I, I felt trapped in this life that no longer suited me anymore. I felt trapped in this, um, outlaw existence. And I really wanted to kind of leave that behind and be, and, and find a way to work in the world. But, um, you know, I had an expired driver's license. I couldn't get a new one. I couldn't rent an apartment. I couldn't drive a car. I couldn't get a job. Um, so I came up with the idea to rob some banks. And
2: <laughs> Very <laughs> logical, yeah. The mind of an addict. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what could exactly. possibly go wrong?
3: <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and, uh, and so I did. And I, I, I did a series of bank robberies um, in Austin, Texas. Uh, the first two were incredibly easy. I walked in with a note. Uh, They handed me the money. I walked out and got on my mountain bike and skated away. And on the third one, I walked in, gave him my note, got the money, walked out, got on my mountain bike, skated away to my hideout and uh, got there and realized there was a tracker taped between two $20 bills. And uh, I was at a hotel and I, I immediately tried to uh, I went outside to throw the tracker in a drain and there were just police circling the building and there was a helicopter in the air. And um, <laughs> Funnily, I, I left my hotel room to go do this in such a panic that I locked the key in the hotel room. So I had to go back in the front lobby, ask for the extra key while everybody's like looking out the window going, what the hell? Why are all the cops out there? Uh, got my key, went upstairs Uh, tried to flush the tracker. It got stuck in the bend in the toilet. Um, And at that point, I was like, shit, I got to get out of here. And I called a cab. The cab came and picked me up. Somehow, the cops let the cab leave the hotel parking lot. It was really weird. Um, I don't think they had an exact location. This was maybe pretty early in the days of GPS. I think they knew there was something in that area, but not a pinpoint. Uh, But anyway, I I left in a cab, and about a day later, they tracked me down and arrested me. Um, And that put an end to my – to that – really, that put an end to that part of my life.
2: How did they track you or without a tracker?
3: I I still don't really know. I had gone back to a girlfriend's house, and they showed up at her house. Um, I had talked to her a couple of times on the hotel phone, and it could have just been that simple. Uh, when they arrested me, one of the cops you know like shoved a piece of paper in my face that had my name on it, and he was like, "Do you know who i am i 've had your face on t v and in the newspapers and I was like i, oh. I don't know what you're talking about you know uh so they had been looking for me so i i don't know i i really don't you know and they don 't matter um, of time how they do all that yeah um and so they arrested me, and I pled guilty and was sentenced to ten years um in in the Texas prison system and uh, I ended up serving six years in prison and four years on parole um, and got out in 2009 and have been out since and uh,
2: I'm sure you so before before yeah before we continue uh, something's coming about our discussion we had in our finding Hermes group our private group or the citizens of the virtual Alexandria you give a great talk on the Gnostic Eucharist and eating a God and all that. But first I like to say it's interesting about your life because yeah, it's it's almost like there are those who are born like we are seekers. We live between chaos and order. We want some religion that'll just say do A B C and this chaos inside your head and heart will be fine. But at the same time we reject it and we just continue yeah, We're addicted to that chaos, and in a way, like, like with you, Gnosticism sort of gave both in my life. It's like you can embrace Dionysus, but you can also, and Sophia, the wild Sophia, but the order of the Aeons. But we continue with that, and like you, I remember as a kid, even well, these days, I always say, Yeah, when I was raised Catholic, I had a uh, my savior was Jesus, but my secret savior was uh, Bruce Lee. I mean, that was mm, sort of yeah. something about Bruce, or Billy Jack, or later on it'd be like Jackie. Something about those kung fu. Uh, again, it brought that chaos and order that we wanted from these uh, very mercurial martial arts people. They were both yeah. order and they were ice and fire. But um, in prison, d- did you say that's really when you? S- Saw or experienced true evil, or was it later on? Or tell us about your your your, yeah. your experience there and the spirituality there.
3: Yeah. Um, well, so when I got arrested, obviously, you know, when you get arrested for bank robbery, it's a considered a very serious charge, even though there was no violence in my crime or weapon I was using a note, but understandably, the state treats it as a violent crime, a robbery. And so, uh, when I started out in prisons, I started out in maximum security, um, prison units in Texas. And then over, uh, the, the, the years that came after that, I worked my way from maximum security to minimum security. Uh, and so it went from, you know, the kind of cell that you could literally stand in the middle and do this and touch each wall, and you're just locked in there twenty three and a half hours with another person um, all the time. Uh, I went from that to by the time I got out of prison, I was at a trustee camp where there's like nobody with guns. You can just walk out the door and walk. The only thing that's keeping you there is is they know you don't want to ruin the fact that you're probably going home soon. Um, so I, my prison experience really ran the the gambit of of all of that, but I do feel like. Um, it was in prison that I uh, experienced um, both some of the most selfless, pure good that I've ever experienced in my life. And also um, some of the darkest evils that I've seen um, in my life. Uh, And interestingly, while I, I definitely met some prisoners who would, fall under the heading of evil people, or at least people who had done some evil things. And I definitely encountered some men who relished in their, their, their evilness. But when I think of the evil in prison, I I think mainly of a lot of the guards, um, that I encountered, uh, just did things, um, you know, from what you could call like the banality of evil. And, and, you know, we kind of talked about it in the, in the Finding Hermes private group, the, this idea of the archons of like bureaucrats that are just there to kind of try to keep you as a slave. Um, one of the things I can remember is is by the time I got to the trustee camp, I started taking some college courses because uh, I wasn't seeking a degree, but I really just wanted to take some interesting courses. They, they had an anthropology class I wanted to take and a history class that I wanted to take and a philosophy class that I wanted to take. and so. Uh, I signed up for these college courses and when I would leave the trustee camp to go to the prison, the absolute hatred that some of the guards showed towards the men who were going to college and the humiliating strip searches that they would put you through or the destruction of your work that they would do. um, uh, The, 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 petty harassments of making you stand naked in the rain in the winter time uh, for extended periods of time just to try to harass you so much that you wouldn't go to college which i it really blew my mind because every statistic i could find showed that you know the number one thing that you can do for a man in prison is give him an education in regards to keeping him from coming back i think the recidivism rates in texas or something like 75 to 80% of the average uh, prisoner goes back to prison. If you get them a high school diploma, that drops down to 50%. If they go to one semester of college, it drops down to 15%. And so I was like, why are these guys trying to make it so hard for me um, to, to go to college? And, and, and I, I think there was just a, such a darkness that they were consumed by almost like, a, an evil spirit. And, and I know you've dealt with, with addiction. And one of the things I think about with heroin addiction is that it is quite literally, uh, selling your soul to the devil. Like, I think that's what that stuff means. Um, and you you really have to fight to get your soul back, but there, there are certain things that seem to be possessed by, um, by a spirit or an energy and prison has a, um, very dark, heavy, oppressive spirit around it. And I, I, the evil that I really felt was that I, I thought that the guards and the administration were very determined to attempt to break the men that were there, um, to to just make them into broken creatures that, that just could not function anymore. Um, and it was it was really, it was very dark. It was very dark. And at the same time, it was juxtaposed with um, some of the deepest uh, friendship bonds I'd ever experienced. Uh, you know, I, I had friends in prison that, you know, if if they had a dollar and I had nothing, well, I had fifty cents. You wow. know, no question about it. People who would put their life on the line for you. Literally, um, it reminds me of things I hear my father talk about with friends in combat. Uh, I think there's something about people in these very rough situations that creates a kind of bonding and a compassion and a love and a fraternity that, um, I have never, uh, experienced since. And it's, it's a weird thing to miss prison in some way. But I think of Alexander Solzhenitsyn talking about, you know, giving thanks to God for the experience of prison. And it, I saw so many things there that, um, that I don't think I, I know I wouldn't have learned or experienced had I not gone.
2: Yeah, it's like uh, prison was a microcosm of the macrocosm that is planet Earth, except a little bit more intense. So you definitely experience it. And it, was it in prison that you cultivate a more esoteric spirituality? It was after you left. <sighs> Well, it's interesting when i <laughs> I like to joke that I had like a white Morgan Freeman
3: character um, when I was in there. Right. I met an older <laughs> white guy who was uh, he was a freemason and he was really into the transcendentalists and and Thoreau and Emerson and um, a, a lot of that uh, the pra- early american that pragmatic spirituality that Mitch kind of also seems to have a, a rooting in and this guy um, introduced me to that stuff. He was there for multiple DWIs. He was a a lawyer in Texas who just couldn't stop drinking and and was just in and out of prison for having so many DWIs. But, you know, he shared Albert Pike's morals and dogma with me and would talk about Kabbalah and, uh, uh, would talk a lot about, you know, got me reading Emerson and got me reading, um, Victor Frankl and, and, um, definitely planted uh these seeds with me now when i got out of prison i i was still um of a mind of buddhism i was practicing buddhism when i was in prison and it's kind of curious the the route that my path has taken because this man his name was Krim, uh, when i was there he was like gently trying to dissuade me from buddhism and he would kind of say you know like you need to you need to you know, you have a spiritual tradition, like you have a culture and a spiritual tradition and you should, that's, that's, that's your home. You know, that's where you need to be. And he would tell me these things that I now tell people, you know, that we talked about, like Carl Jung saying you need to make a reconciliation with the religion of your fathers or you're never going to individuate, you know? Uh, But I wasn't ready to hear it at the time, but I definitely got exposed to that there. Um, and I, I had a big awakening moment that um, I, I prayed for the first time in a long time when I got to the back of the prison gates in the bus. And the first time I got there, and I prayed – I didn't have a concept of God at at that time, but I just prayed that um, I would carry myself in a way that would not bring dishonor to my ancestors. Like no matter what happens, let me act in a way that my father wouldn't be ashamed of, that my grandfather wouldn't be ashamed of, you know, kind of all the way back through time. Um, And, and I, I definitely, Realized that if I survived my time in prison, I was going to be a changed person that I I had taken for granted. Um, I, I think of it like this: like my my dad came from very poor Tennessee backgrounds and only got to go to college because of the Vietnam War, and then you know struggled so hard to pull himself up into the middle class. And then you know I'm his firstborn son, and he tries to hand the keys of the kingdom to me. Um, and I just spit in his face and become a heroin addict, you know, I, I, all of his hard work, I did everything I could to just tear it all down. And I, and I realized in prison, I was just taking my life and my patrimony for granted. You know, I, I, and I vowed if I got out of there alive that I would not, you know, ever take it for granted again. Um, and that was a big part of the spiritual awakening for me in there is realizing that, you know, my life had a purpose and uh, I mentioned I took an anthropology class, and the professor who taught it was very um, instrumental in my redemption, and, and she would talk to us about the fact that you know, we were experiencing probably the last place in the Western culture where you could really uh, have the shamanic journey. You know, she was like, you guys fell sick with the illnesses of your culture, with violence, addiction, greed, crime. You fell ill with that, and you died. And now you've been buried in the under, like you're in the underworld and you might not survive this. You know, you might most, most people don't, most people come back, keep, you know, they just fall into this cycle of returning to prison. But she said, if you can redeem yourself, then the next step in that journey is you have to bring something back to the tribe. You know, if you survive the shamanic sickness, you it's, it's your goal to then try to bring the lessons of that death and rebirth. Um, you know, back to the community or to the culture. And so I definitely came out of prison with that mission, but was still very much involved in, in Buddhism and, and um, kind
2: of the, an Eastern flavor of, of my search. Wonderful. Yeah. And I was also going to mention too, Brian, uh, talking about the grunge, I think uh, being a uh, Gen X, probably really uh, accentuated this Gnostic worldview because I think we were, Really a generation that suddenly looked back and saw how the game was rigged, uh, what a sham society we lived. I mean, yeah, we like 60s music and 80s fun yeah. like Top Gun. But we realized that the yuppie generation, the 70s, the 60s, we had a really, we saw what it was. And it made us extremely cynical, extremely detached. Extremely awake, but also extremely destructive, because there was a lot of nihilism and existentialism in the whole, with the genetics and the grunge movement. So, like everything, it works for you and against you, just, you know, our insanity can work for and against us, our drive to get drugs, if we put it somewhere else, will work for or against us, so... I think we were the first really Gnostic generation. I hope uh, these other younger generations will be that, except with the existential angst and despair we had, and not being so detached. We we, we won't participate in any of the systems, except uh, yeah. But um, and after uh, well, after you got out of prison, let's talk about when did you get uh, acquainted with those ancient heretics, the Gnostics. Well, I had
3: um, I I'd gotten out and was living in Austin, Texas and was um, um, practicing some occult stuff and involved in, in, in Buddhist studies and um, the author and occultist, uh, Craig Williams. I don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar with him. Yeah, yeah he's been
2: on the show. I've been...
3: Okay, yeah. He was in Austin and he had a small study group for the Gospel of Thomas. And uh, I started going to his study group there, and he would do um, a very stripped down in regards to bells and smells of the ritual, but a very potent uh, form of the Eucharist for people who were interested in it at the end of the of the study. And so I was participating in that and hanging out with Craig some and kind of learning from him. And um, around that time, David Beth came through town and uh, gave a lecture and uh, made me a deacon in his church. So I had my first like Gnostic um, initiation there, experience of the Holy Orders. Although I could not make heads or tails of what the hell David and Craig were talking about and what the hell Michael Bertio was talking about. Like it, it just, I could not, I could get no purchase in the sense of like trying to climb a rock or something on, on what they were saying. It was just, it just was going so far over my head, although the experiences were very powerful. So that was my first um, experience with it, but I just couldn't find my way in. Uh, So I just continued on with my with my Buddhist studies. Uh, but I recognized many years later, I think particularly the Eucharists that I was able to partake in with Craig and, and, and definitely the, um, initiation that I received at the hands of David, um, really put some seeds inside of me that weren't quite ready to bloom. Um, they needed some more watering and some more time, or maybe even when you talk about those guys, maybe not seeds, but like time bombs that they planted inside me. Um, that it just took a couple of more years, uh, to detonate. Uh, so, but that was my first time of, of, you know, really kind of sitting down and looking at, um, Gnostic scriptures. And it was around that time that I, I had, uh, I think it was around that time I had seen your podcast or YouTube videos. And, um, I remember just being very struck by the long intros that you would do and all of the different, um, cultural pieces that it, that it pulled in and, and, um, and realizing kind of like what you were saying earlier that the people who grew up when we did with those movies and those shows, like we were, we were learning. um, I mean, I almost feel like a serious occultist kind of laugh at this stuff, but I'm, I'm much more interested in being a popularizer than being a serious occultist. And I feel like, like the, the matrix, like it's people act like it's corny to say, but I mean, my God, that movie was the, I, I don't. I don't think you could possibly overestimate the way that that movie has shook the culture, like deeply. And it's a. And it's a. A brilliant retelling of fundamental Gnostic mythology. And it. And it. And it. Um, it changed the world. That movie changed the world. And so I discovered, like I said, discovered your podcast. So that was around the first time I. I had. Started thinking or hearing about Gnosticism, but I just could not make. Um, any sense of it, so I continued on with my path of, of Buddhist meditation, um, which, like I talked about in the group the other day, ultimately culminated in a very powerful Gnostic experience and encounter with the thing that that then bro- finally broke it all open for me. Yeah,
2: as you mentioned in our talk, you said that's also another experience that there had to be evil or that there was evil. I think we yeah. Were- we were talking about um I was making a joke, uh that whenever uh, in Buddhism I talk about, well, the Buddha said there is no self and the self is unknowable. If I put this on Facebook I get bum rushed by people comment that's not true, that's they'll they'll quote all these scriptures. I'm like, Well, the original Buddhism was pretty Gen X, if you would, very existentialist, very dualistic. The Buddha was a punk rocker, you yeah. say, when he, but then religions have to get softened to get, it you can't get just the the, the crazies like us, so you got to soften it up to make it. But uh, tell us about uh, your experience and how it strengthened evil or, yeah, re- well, you know- reacquainted, you, or reacquainted you with evil, Brian.
3: Yeah, I, I think that the, you know, kind of the, for me at least, the fundamental Gnostic awakening or, you know, maybe even the fundamental Christian awakening uh, was the realization of the Atman, of the self, of soul, of that thing which is, you know, looking out of my eyes and hearing through my ears right now. That that thing was not um, non-existent or, or or transitory or impermanent as Buddhism taught me for so many years and as I was attempting to you know prove out by my meditation I actually proved the exact opposite and uh, I, I really think there's something fundamental in that realization uh, at least for me and for other people I've talked to that the a real solid realization of self immediately is also realization of other and that kind of resolved the question of the existence of God for me. Um, and then very quickly on the heels of that, and I guess maybe I'm just kind of a dualist, but, but it was just immediately apparent to me that if there is a force of good and light and power and liberation and freedom, um, there is definitely a, a force that's working in the other direction. Um, it's um, it's baffling to me. I live in a town in Asheville, North Carolina that has a, a very new age kind of hippie um, vibe to it, which I, in a lot of ways, I like. In a lot of ways, I resonate with you know manifesting your reality and like all of that kind of stuff. But this idea that everything is working towards the good and anything that seems bad is just you know it's just you haven't realized the good side of it. It's like you, I, I can't see how you can study the history of the 20th century and the gulags or the killing fields or Auschwitz and, and think that, you know, all is one. And that these are just, you know, schools for all of these beings to realize their true divine nature. It's like, no, there's, it's rare I think, I think most people who do evil things are doing that because they themselves are hurt or they themselves are in ignorance or, or whatever. Uh, but there are definitely people uh, out there that are, I think, possessed by something that's transhuman. Um, and that does not have the, you know, the, in the same way, I think there's angelic forces, I guess I would say, I think that there are, or I'd say, I know that there are archonic forces. Um, and all of that just became immediately clear to me, uh, when I realized that I am self, you know, it's, it just, I feel like it just kind of, in some weird way, it just goes together. You know, Uh, it's almost impossible. I can't see how one, I can have one and not have, uh, the other, um, And so, yeah, around that time, it it became very apparent to me and I I became very, um, you mentioned like the Gen Xers growing up with nihilism and, uh, you know, we've also grown up with, and and this is getting even stronger, this kind of postmodern um, current of things, that there is no truth, that all of it, it's all relative and subjective. And um, I've become obsessed over the last six years since my awakening experience with the fact that like that does not seem to be the case to me at all um i i think there is absolutely truth i don't think morality is relative um, there's definitely relative moralities um, but i i think there is the good and the true um and there is the evil and there's there is sin you know in the the sense of missing the mark and being off
2: the path and and moving away from the good. Uh, yeah. And uh, Brian, how did you then, uh, fully come into Gnosticism later on? Well, I had, um, kind of right
3: after the experience of waking up to self, um, I was practicing, there's a man, um, I don't know if people know who he is and, it, and maybe that's a shame named Alan Chapman, who was a, a chaos magician back in the eighties and nineties. And, and he ultimately left chaos magic after kind of having these same experiences of capital T truth. Um, he wrote, um, <laughs> Alan's gone through a few manifestations where he'll write some amazing books and get a really great website going and then kind of realize that it's not as accurate as he wants it to be and just pulls all his books away and takes his website down and you can't find them anymore. Um, but he has a really great book if you can find it called the blood of the saints. Uh, that's basically like him charting his way through doing the Abra operation. Uh, and afterwards he was teaching a series of meditations that were kind of like a stripped down version of the Abra Malin, um, very loosely based on Abram and Lynn, but were um, with the goal of having knowledge and conversation of the Holy guardian angel and I had reached out to Alan and was kind of talking to him about some of the experiences that I had had, and he was giving me some meditation instruction and i was I just had a surgery, so I, I had the chance to kind of go on retreat and went on retreat and was practicing some of these meditations and uh, very quickly had the the knowledge and conversation of the Holy guardian angel or the diamond or the twin or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that being, um, I don't know how else to say this other than it just threw me onto the path of Christianity. Like it just would not let me do anything else. If I, I, and I was horrified by this. I did not want to be a Christian. I, I, I thought Christianity was silly and oppressive and, um, so basic, and I had all of the punk rockers' arguments against Christianity, and and I and I I was just I just was horrified that like, but any time I I tried to turn away from it, I was just miserable, and I I just knew I I had to engage with this, and um and I very quickly started listening to Jordan Peterson's Bible lectures and watching Stefan Heller's bishop stefan heller's youtube lectures and reading his books on gnosticism and i thought oh wait a minute this is the way that i can relate to this tradition this is a way that i can work very deeply with the symbols and capital m myth of christianity um, in a way that is not offensive to my my intellect and to my being and to my you know, myself and, and the more I learned about, I also started to listen to all of your back catalog at this point and learning more about the, you know, the early history of Christianity and getting really inspired by this idea of having a Renaissance of like the early church where it's not this one, you know, unified Orthodox thing, but it's like different communities working at it in all their different and unique ways and, um, and felt really, really called to try to figure out how to do that. Uh, Like I said, since I was in my early teens, I'd wanted to be a Shaolin monk and a regular monk. And, you know, I've always felt called towards ministry. Um, And one of my great aunts put it to me after kind of after my reconversion to Christianity. And she said, you know, you've always been called to ministry. And, And when she said that, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I, maybe I could be a Gnostic priest. Maybe I could do this thing and and play a role in bringing this church back. You know, maybe this is what I need to be doing with my life. And maybe this is the way I can serve the world. And so I sought out um, ordination and was ordained um, by a good friend of mine. And about a year later, he was like, him and some other priests were like, look, You know, we, you just need, we just need to make you a bishop so that you can just have full authority um, where you are to do your thing. Because after becoming a priest, you know, a lot of people become priests in these Gnostic lineages and just kind of have an internet church and really don't do anything. And I was not interested in that at all. I wanted to organize something on the ground where people came, that would be something that you could bring your kids to and you could grow up in and, you know, it would be a real source of community and something Alive and real in the world, and so started doing that here, and uh, and and became a bishop. And and um, in that time, I reached out to Bishop John Plummer, who wrote a really great series of books on the independent sacramental movements. And you know, I, I feel like God really put Bishop Plummer in my life, and he just really took me under his wing and has been my my spiritual mentor since then, and has just given me everything I want in the, in the, in the way of help and helping have the church here and, um, transmitted his lines of, of apostolic and esoteric, um, ordination to me. Uh, we co consecrated each other in a very moving ceremony for me. Um, and it's just, you know, like since I've gotten on this path, I feel like all of the doors just fell open, you know, um, in my previous spirituality, I was trying so hard to make things happen. It's, <laughs> it's just never—you know—it's like one obstacle in front of the other. And I feel in a certain way like God was protecting me from these other things because of this idea of where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. So after that, it, it's just been just been trying to learn as much as I can about this and and make my um, contribution to it and bring it to the world because I, I feel like our culture is. Um, is teetering on the edge actually. And uh, that I feel like the only thing that has a real chance of saving it is a deep connection to a spiritual reality. Um, And so that's what I've been trying to do ever since. Yeah.
2: spiritual solution, I would say, as they say in AA is I think the only solution today, but people will look where they're going to look and, Beyond a priesthood, which is uh, basically, at the end of the day, being of service to other, helping out the community, being part of the community, how would you say Gnosticism or even Gnosis has helped your worldview, kept you sober, kept you from having another bad idea like, I wonder if I could rob another bank or something, yeah. <laughs> you know, those stupid ideas. Uh, well, what is it? a course in miracles says? God had one stupid, crazy idea, and look what happened. So, yeah, yeah, from yeah, doing right. that. Right. Right. well, I
3: I think you know, the minute you were saying that, I was thinking about. Um, so one of the things that I like to look at is, or, or I like to say to people, is like my Christianity is way older than anyone called Jesus or any, you know, particular event in any part of the world. I think these mythic cycles are older than time, and so I like to look around and see where I can see its 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 footprint. You know, and and a few years ago I was doing a lot of studying of Zoroastrianism and reading the avestas and things like that and and uh, which i still love uh, and I, I there's something in i think it's in the avesta where you know it's it's saying that uh, the the reason that humans are here like we're here on this mission you know which is kind of like in the matrix right we're here on this mission to help people wake up um to our original status Uh, as sons and daughters of the most high. Um, I love the hymn of the pearl and talking about, you know, we, we've all kind of fallen into the flesh pots of Egypt and have forgotten the, you know, original splendor of the robe of glory. Um, but the father sends these messengers to be like, remember that note, you know, it tells you who you really are. Um, and so for me, you know, one of the biggest things in, in my Gnostic Christianity is, 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 just waking up to the fact that my life has purpose that is bigger than my desire for things, you know, like I can't fall back into doing that stuff again because I'm here on a mission, you know, like I'm here on my father's mission. I'm here to do my father's work. You know um, I, I think that uh, it's something that modern people like to scoff at uh, but I I try to be a hero. I want to be a hero. I want to live that life. I consider myself a knight and a warrior, and and someone who has a mission uh, that's bigger than himself. And so that really directs, you know, virtually everything I do. From you know waking up early and and meditating and praying and working out every single day. Um, you know, trying to be a good husband, uh, trying to be a reliable hard working person at my job, you know, trying to be a good friend and a good member of the community, um, all of that stuff is and try to be an emissary of something good and powerful in the world uh is is the main thing I think that keeps me uh it's hard for me to conceive of not doing that. I would rather die um than than fall back into a life that neglects that purpose. Um, and I, and I think that that's, you know, one of the exciting things about Gnosticism as a religion is that this is baked into it. You know, we're all called to be Christ. We're all called to be Neo. It's like the, the story's about us, you know, it's, it's, it's our, it's our role. And if you, you know, if you can shake off the nihilism and, 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 um, how would you say it i i think that the way that the culture currently just seems to sneer at the heroic um yeah. if you can if you can shake that off my god what a what else is there to do you know like it, who doesn't want to do that like um i feel yeah, like i you're right, right. Mom, i
2: think uh <laughs> Yeah, I would agree with you. I think uh, for uh, all of you out there, you do have a true will. If you want to talk about the limb or sacred purpose, or once you align your soul to your higher self, it will, it will happen and you will feel like a hero. And I'm sure you agree with me, me, Brian, that the great thing about Gnosticism is you don't have to lose your edge. In fact, uh, I always think it's a prerequisite for Gnosticism to have still that punk rock edge, to have a really dark sense of humor. And even when I talk to some of my friends, I think Gnosticism is the one religion. If there is a commandment, is you have to make fun of yourself and your own religion, which I'm sure you do. I mean, we have, Gnosticism mocks everything, but it mocks itself too.
3: Yeah, you you have to. I think of this is something I've inherited from my father. You know, you have to be able to see all sides of the of of the thing and see the weirdness. I mean, geez, if you if you take up a <laughs> a outward facing gnostic path in this world, um, you know. It, one, everyone's going to think you're crazy because everyone knows that that Jesus stuff is just old fashioned, you know, bullshit. And that what's really the thing is yoga or aliens or, you know, whatever, you know, um, so if you are all of a sudden talking about the Christ and, you know, reading the old test, I mean, honestly, I think that that kind of stuff is the most (laughs) kind of punk rock thing you can do. And I remember David Beth, uh, specifically telling me, you know, everybody wants to do Tantra and everybody wants to do this dark left-hand path stuff. And, you know, we, we look at I was teaching a class here about this back when we could still meet in person, but saying, you know, the reason Tantricas in, in India drank alcohol and had sex and all that kind of stuff is because that went completely against the cultural norms. Well, if you want to go completely against the cultural norms and be a tantrika, get married. You know, have a, have a, um, uphold monogamy. Uh, be a person who tells the truth. You know, um, be sober, right? Like these are, these are the things that really cut against, um, the current culture. You know, read, read scripture. Um, pray. Read a book. Yeah yeah. 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 Read a book. Um, these things really do, I think with Gnosticism, you, you have to have that edge. Like you, you couldn't, you know, you probably couldn't do it, um, without it. And having that edge shows up in ways you would never imagine. I did a friend's wedding two weeks ago and I was out there in my very Catholic looking robes and I see pictures of myself and it's like, oh my God, I can't believe that's me standing up there with this giant cross on, you know, doing this thing. But, um, that's super edgy for me. <laughs> you know, that's, that's pushing way out to the edge of, of my, um, uh, my comfort zone or what is comfortable. But, um, I think C K G K GK Chesterton talked about that. Like, you know, Christianity's not a, or, or maybe it was C.S. Lewis, that Christianity's not a religion to make you feel comfortable. You know, it's not a religion that's going to make you um, feel in harmony with things and, and particularly these Gnostic manifestations of it, you know.
2: Agreed, agreed. One second, let me let the cat out. For the audience, I will put a blank space. All right, cat. Go out and find your gnosis. Okay. All right. Well, speaking of, I think this uh, is a good uh, segue into this. I love your ideas, Brian, of uh, esoteric patriotism. So maybe you could share with the audience about it. You and I have had conversations in the past about it, and it's uh, yeah, it's Um, definitely another solution we could use today. Yeah, I I
3: mean, I think everybody who's watching this is (laughs) anybody sees this is aware that we're living in like very fraught, um, political times. And I know that people always, you know, think this, uh, but I think we are in a unique situation, at least for anyone who's alive today, um, in the country right now. And I feel like, um, what's happening more and more is that we're fracturing into, um, different, um, Would you call it different um, factions of almost the same idea? Uh, And on the the left side of the spectrum, it's this idea of uh, a collectivism that's based around you know your your um, it's a collectivism based around your identity, and the identity there is you know what group of oppressed, um, fragmented person do you fit into? And then on the right on the extreme right we're having this same sort of thing um, this this fracturing and this building of this um, this particular politic that's based around the common identity of of race right so you've got um, it's almost like we've got the far left versions of communism and the far right versions of socialism which are this ethno state kind of craziness and and it's it's fracturing more and more, in these directions and the more i thought about it um and was at the same time thinking about uh, the the kind of founding of this country and and even things that we saw happening in europe um and the the development of the idea of the individual and the rights of the individual, and the role of the state in regards to those rights, and then you have this American experiment that happened in the later 1700s, um, you know, where where we have these these documents that are unimaginably strange, where all of a sudden you're saying. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And we've all heard that since we were children in school and don't really think about what it means. But, you know, it occurred to me, like, what a revolutionary concept this was that, like, your rights didn't come from government, they don't come from the state it's not the role of the state to grant you or give you rights your rights come from god and that those rights are based on the fact that we are all sparks of that god we are all children of that god and and the the divine inheritance we have is is also why we have these these cultural rules and norms that we just at our detriment take for granted um Jordan Peterson has this great way of of talking about pointing this out by, you know, if me, you and someone else were sitting at a public restaurant and I got up and killed somebody and everybody saw me do it. Our culture does not accept the idea that then the logical thing we do is just grab me right there and hang me from a tree, right? The idea is that even if everyone sees me commit the crime, there is still something that has to be honored. I have to be brought in front of a court. I get to make a defense I get to be judged by a jury of my peers, right? This is, there's no logical reason for that. Like the logical answer is if you saw someone commit a murder, what more discussion does there need to be about it? But I think that this legal principle comes from the fact that it's, it's a recognition of something divine inside that has to be treated with a certain respect in a certain way, even in the midst of the commission of some sort of horrible act. There's something. There's something precious and of worth there. And I started thinking about that when the Me Too movement was going on and the kind of uh, way in which it seemed like more and more people were wanting to enact some kind of legal or social system where innocence was not presumed, but guilt was presumed. Right. And I remember thinking that this was a very dangerous uh, thing to start to do that, that, that that one thing violating that one thing would open the door to hell. Um, all of a sudden, if if what I had to do was prove my innocence, not that the community had to prove my guilt, that's a sure road to hell and tyranny. Uh, and that made me start thinking about these founding ideals. And at the same time, as I'm sure, there's probably people yelling at the screen right now. Well, yeah, they wrote those documents, but they owned slaves and they didn't let women vote and they didn't see black people as human. And it's right, obviously, um, we know that these were flawed, you know, people. They didn't designate between right or left shoes either. Like this was, you know, the 1700s. It was it was very early, but the principles that they were um, hitting upon this was the thing that I was finding that my patriotism lay in that, in the, the, the roots, the cultural roots of the West, which, um, you know, I would describe and other people describe as kind of like the intersection of Jerusalem and Athens. The, this thing of you have divine revelation, you have, um, all human beings are created in the image of God. And then from Athens, you have the idea that like, we can use our minds to figure out objective reality and to discover truth. Um, and the melding of these two things seem to be at the root of Western culture, and I feel like um, that we are at a juncture where we're close to losing that. Um, we're close to losing the idea that what we are is spirit soul, that we're I'm not you know we're more than I'm a white male heteronormative, or you know, here's a black woman who identifies as trans. Like, these are not our identities. This is not the root of who and what we are. We are, we are, we come from something much deeper um, than that. And we're also teetering to the point that we're giving up on the idea that there is an objective world that's knowable, that there are truths about things. Um, that we can use our mind to discover those truths, that it's not all just subjective and based on my own, you know, personal individual experience, that there's things to learn and know about the world. (laughs) And so I started thinking about that from a spiritual basis and feeling like I'm watching the country get torn apart and there being a loss of anything like an American identity Um, as it fractures into either the identities of the far left or the identities of the far right, which are both odious, in in my opinion, and not a direction that I'm willing to go down. Um, But I do think that there is something very, capital T, true at the heart of the American experiment um, that is worth preserving, but the only way that, that we will we will get to that is to engage with it and, and learn about it. And, um, and this drove me to become a Mason. And I think Freemasonry is a, a S like an arc of a storehouse of these, these, the symbol set of this Rosicrucian hermetic tradition that lays at the, at the founding of this country. Uh, Stefan Heller has a really great book called freedom um, alchemy for, uh, think it's called alchemy for a free society. Um, but he makes a really beautiful argument in there that America is not a Christian nation. America is a hermetic nation. It's a hermetic Rosicrucian nation. And, uh, reading that just had such a profound impact on me. And, uh, so I, I, started, you know, kind of inspired by you doing a podcast where I'm I'm trying to work on these ideas. I've started working on a, a book about these ideas. Um, and I try to, I try to do things that are again, in my mind, very tantric because they, they cut. Uh, so I, I, I talk about patriotism. I, I, I use images of revolutionary era flags and I, 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 Proudly embrace and uphold these things, which is something that um, is just not seen very much. You know, I mean, we see the far right kind of bastardize these symbols in a pornographic way, and we see the far left, you know, just want to tear them and set them on fire. And I've just come to realize that, like, I'm not letting either one of these two groups of people destroy my my heritage and my birthright. Um, uh, and so th- that's kind of been my, my project, uh, for the last few years is figuring that out. And, and, and up until now, it's mainly just been trying to kind of figure out my thinking about it and, and, you know, coming up with like answers to the questions of, oh, well, you're just talking about Americans or, you know, does Western just mean white or is it just, you know, is it just for Europeans? Are you excluding, you know, all of these kinds of, typical questions that would logically come up from that and attempting to work through the answers of it and and uh, and now trying to put that down onto paper and into my podcast and um, and you know trying to evangelize with that
2: that's awesome brian and yes uh heller's book is very good i have it right here on the shelf uh and yes, I would agree. This is the nation of Hermes, and Hermes is the god of innovation, innovation, the god of uh, freedom, the god of rights, and uh, places like Alexandria and Renaissance uh, Florence, and the United States. When Hermes gets haram in the Middle East, when Hermes gets there, there is an explosion of ideas, innovation, creativity. So. Uh reason I'm doing this podcast is to hopefully give Hermes w- another chance to see how he incarnates in the 21st century, and we shall see. But it's uh, been a great conversation, Brian. Real quick for the audience, because I want people to have some takeaways. I think you've given a lot by your inspirational life, but what are four or five spiritual exercises you do today? So one of the things that I started doing a couple of years ago
3: is praying the the hours. So, um, uh, I'm very interested in the Knights Templar and, and consider myself part of that stream. And one of the rules of the Templars was you had to pray one of the hours every day. You know, they were involved in different things, so they couldn't do all of them, but you had to commit to doing one. So every morning, you know, my spiritual discipline is I, I get up, pre-dawn every morning and i come in and pray louds like the morning prayers and i i um i've put together a series of prayers from the gnostic mass and from the liturgy of the liberal catholic church along with um uh the Kabbalistic cross and intoning um uh, you know doing gnostic vowel chants as part of that um morning prayer cycle and uh, i do that 7 days a week Every day, start the day with those prayers. Um, I do a short version. Like, when I say short, I mean, like, if I only have two minutes, you know, at noon, I pray again, um, just kind of recentering myself as a spiritual being in the midst of, you know, my work day. And uh, in the morning, I always, you know, uh, pray to God that I'm dedicating the day to the service of, of light to the service of the most high. And then at noon, I'll do that again. You know, I rededicate myself in the middle of the day. Uh, and then at night, uh, I pray with my, with my spouse, uh, before we go to bed, we pray together and the same thing, just kind of, you know, reflecting on the day, giving thanks for the day. Um, uh, you know, making pledges, uh, in the ways that I will, you know, be better than I have been at the end of that day, if I'm given the chance to do it again tomorrow. So, um, those morning prayers are my main spiritual discipline as, and also a daily physical exercise. I feel like it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's important for me. And I think, you know, for most people, if they started doing it to have a, a strong, capable, um, healthy body and a clear thinking mind. Um, I do martial arts a lot. I've done it my whole life. I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, So I, you know, go train three or four times a week. I, I think it's important to do some hard sparring to be involved in combat uh, particularly if you see yourself as part of a you know any kind of a warrior tradition i think you need to you know go engage in, in that and, and engage in physical confrontation and you know learn to deal with the anxiety and stress and fear that comes from that learn to win learn to lose compete um all of that so i consider my my physical training uh, completely integrated with my spiritual path. Um, my partner is a body worker, um, and a functional medicine practitioner. And, and, uh, we both very much, uh, see the, the, the body and spirit as being intimately connected. Uh, and so I feel like having a strong, healthy body, um, helps me have a strong and healthy spirit. And also it's just, I, I feel like discipline is, is very important. I, I know that, um, I learned in prison that I worked very well with disciplined regimens, particularly as someone who had been an addict. Um, I think about it, like turning my addict superpower, uh, into something good. Like I was really good at doing heroin every single day, man. I never missed a day, you know, I never missed a day. Um, and I'm like that with working out and with praying and meditating, I'm an addict for it. I don't miss, I I do it every day. It's what I do. Um, and so I I think it's very important to have a spiritual discipline. Um, a lot of people struggle with that and I would recommend, you know, start with something small, um, maybe five minutes of meditation, uh, but do it every day. You know, if you miss a day, uh, don't beat yourself up. Don't, don't quit just get right back on it. You know, like relapsing is kind of part of the thing of getting clean, right? It just happens. Um, and, and I think it's important. I do it every morning because it works with my work schedule, but, um, reading some spiritual material every morning, uh, reading some scripture or the writings of someone that you really like or, or a study in an esoteric subject. But every single day, I feel like it's important to put good in you know, we live in this like really unique time where you can pretty much choose any of the input you want to receive. Like there's so many good podcasts. There's so many good YouTube lectures. There's audio books. If you don't like reading, reading, but like, I, I think it's very important um, every day to study the esoteric material and to, um, you know, don't so many people are armchair, uh, academic Gnostics or occultists and they read a lot of books and I do too. I love reading books and I love talking about this stuff. But you know, you really at some point you have to get up and, and do the practices if you want to um if you want to get free. You know, if you want if if your goal is freedom, it, it you can't just sit in your cell and read books. Like you gotta
2: you've got to do do the work, you know? Exactly. And well said. Well, as we end, uh, where can people find more about you, Brian, on the internets?
3: Yeah, you can find my podcast It's called modern Gnostic and it's on all the main, it's on Apple, iTunes and, um, Spotify and Google and all of that. Um, you can find it there. I'm also on Facebook, Brian Stanford, my name. Um, I love accepting friend requests and talking to people. Um, if you're needing help with something or trying to get a spiritual routine started, I'm happy to respond to messages and, and help. So, you know, check out the podcast and uh, subscribe and share it around. And if you like it and you think it's good and it inspires something in you reach out to me. Um, I, uh, uh if you're in North Carolina or anywhere near the Asheville area, we're about to start having the Gnostic temple meeting in person again in November. So we typically meet twice a month. We celebrate the Eucharist on one of those. And then on one of the other ones, we have a study and meditation. Uh, so if anybody's in the surrounding area and wants to come check that out, reach out to me on, on social media and I'll get you uh, plugged in for that. So yeah, mainly find me through my podcast or on Facebook.
2: Instagram. Wonderful. Well, I will as always have show notes on both the video and the audio versions but uh, Brian, thank you very much for sharing your story, uh, your spirituality, uh, all about you. And uh, definitely thank you very much for coming on Finding Hermes.
3: Well, thank you, man. And Miguel, It's it's been, um, I can't tell you what it feels like to sit here and talk to you after listening to so many years and listening to so many episodes and, and, uh, I mean, just like what an amazing time that kind of like your heroes in regards to something you can reach out to them and talk to them and 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 uh, I I love what you're doing and I just think it's such a great thing um, for the world and it definitely changed my life so thank you thank you for doing this
2: I appreciate it of course uh, we're all just lights on a journey helping one another like you said it's. It's very democratic, as Hermes would have it, and the yeah. internet has made it even more. We can like sit, share our ideas and uh, without too much of a hierarchy. That's what I love about it. So, yeah. But Brian, thank you very much, and uh, we'll definitely have you on in the future. All right, brother. And there you have it. Talk about laying your cards on the table. Our interview with Brian Stanford. Quite a journey, and I'm sure we could have gone a lot longer. So hopefully we'll have Brian on in the future. Um, definitely I have my own takeaways from it. I think the, f- the main one I have is uh, Brian's idea of going back to the religion of your father's. To some of you, that may seem a little bit cray-cray. I mean, many of us put a lot of work into getting away from these religions, these orthodox faiths that traumatized us when we were young, and we're happy to have evolved and gained some distance. But I disagree with Tom Wolfe and his famous saying, you can never go back home again. I think we have to go back home why is that because in a way we have to face the past we have to reconcile all of ourselves including our past selves we have to um, have a more again holistic whole view of our entire life past present and future And we have to, well, and by seeing new dimensions of ourselves, of our past, new perspectives of our past religions, it will open up a lot of more doors to peace, to serenity, to understanding, to seeing the whole picture. It reminds me very much of that saying I often quote on Aeon Bite by Tom Robbins, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. And we can have a happy childhood by, again, seeing those new dimensions and perspectives, by seeing our past with empathy, with new vistas, uh, with new understandings. When we go back to the past, to the religions of our fathers, as Brian called them, um, we will see what was wrong with the people there. And it really comes down to they were afraid. Perhaps those in your past who were part of these religions, they were afraid of hell. Maybe they were afraid of heaven. Maybe they were afraid that if uh, no one acted the same or believed the same, then they might be wrong about their spirituality. They were afraid, and we have to understand that, and in a way, forgive them for it. At the same time, I think we will find in our past religions, in the religion of our fathers, we'll find that these religions were not all that bad, that they were, like our lives, they were part of a continuum, Mm. a part of humanity's search for transcendence, for belonging in this universe, for becoming something better and once we find that uh, we will also find a lot of insight and holiness and uh, wonderful ideas and a lot of heart with uh, these old religions and the people that participated in in them even if we think again they traumatized us and they blocked us off and they try to suppress our hearts which they did but they were afraid and fear is the mind killer as i keep saying and we can be like the Valentinians in Rome in the second century or the Sethians in the Neoplatonic universities in the third and fourth century. We can use the religions of our fathers and rewrite them, reinterpret them, uh, find uh, new insights that will make our lives better and the gems that are there in the muck of these Orthodox religions. So yes, you can go back and have a happy childhood because you'll find new dimensions of these religions, of yourselves, of the people. And once you have empathy, once you have forgiveness, then your past self will be released from so much and your present self will be more liberated. I know it's hard, but uh, in a way it is necessary. I mean... I think it has to be done, as uh, this quote, uh, my favorite quote from the movie Magnolia, probably Tom Cruise's best performance, is uh the saying that goes throughout the movie. You may be through with the past, but the past ain't through with you. So might as well go back to the past, and as the Gospel of Thomas says, once you know the past, you will know the end, and you will rule over all. Or I think it says, once uh, you must go to the beginning to know the end. The other takeaway from Brian's interview, and I have many takeaways, but I I don't want to take too much of your time. uh, But let me know how I am doing with my commentaries or what, what I could do better. But that is Brian's idea of perspective, how we tend to judge those in the past. I guess that's the theme, right? Going to the past. How we tend to judge harshly our ancestors and historical figures. And it really comes down to perspective uh, as um, my favorite, well, one of my favorite quotes from my favorite New Age book, perhaps Illusions by Richard Bach, is... um, perspective use it or lose it and uh, this reminds me of uh, in my life uh, a long time ago many moons ago i was dating an indian girl and she told me that every generation in india sees gandhi differently in other words one generation sees him as a saint and the next one will see him as the devil And why is that? I mean, there's no real October surprises, if you know what I mean. Sure, there's maybe a book or a documentary, but uh, these generations see Gandhi completely different. And it all comes down to perspective. And like the religion of the, like the religions of your father, these historical figures, uh, it's all about seeing, seeing them as a whole, seeing them completely. Gandhi is certainly a figure that changed history, but he was a, a flawed individual. He was an individual that was both heaven and hell as the Sufi poem, um, talks about each one of us, each one of us are. Uh, heaven and hell, if we go look inside enough. So we simply have to see someone like Gandhi in a totality, in, uh, in a perspective, perspective, use it or lose it. But that, uh, when she told me that, it really changed, uh, the way I looked at people, the way I looked at history. And we can't be too judgmental with those that came before us because, again, uh, they had a certain consciousness. They certainly had some blind spots, but like us today, they had, uh, well, they had to get through the end of the day. It's very hard to get through the end of the day. Uh, we all got to put money on the table, deal with other people and, uh, engage in the harshness of life. We can't be sitting there all, well, We can't be seeing all of our blind spots, and when we see them, we can't really address them all the time. I mean, if we want to judge uh, our ancestors and those in the past harshly, we'll probably be judged very harshly ourselves. I mean, look at today. As I've mentioned before, we, in a way, support slavery. How do we do that? Well, with this. We have... Our tools are probably built by slave labor, and many of us know this, but again, how do we get to this issue? It's harder than you think, and many people simply have blind spots to it. Even issues like how we treat animals, how we treat the environment. Uh, Future generations will think, well, what was wrong with them? Couldn't they see the solutions? Couldn't they see what was so wrong? Well, We tried. We did the best that we could. And uh, all we can do is just evolve and hopefully improve. So my takeaway is don't judge those too harshly in the past because, uh, well, you will be judged too. So how do we change our perspective? Well as I, I certainly have mentioned, we have to have more understanding. We have to have more empathy. We have to understand when we're projecting upon others, which is usually most of the time. And we have to see the divinity in everybody and the struggles that everybody goes through as a people, as individuals. Uh, in uh, recovery, those of you in recovery, I'm sure you know that when we have a resentment towards others it seems nothing is good with that person and maybe maybe for people uh who aren't even in recovery maybe you see you have a resentment and because of something a person did to you or something a person said to you or you're something like that and you that person well it seems that person's nothing is good with that person Their taste in music sucks. What they wear sucks. Uh, How they speak is terrible. And then all of a sudden, you might, well, your perspective is expanded. You might get some new piece of information. And it almost seems that person is completely transformed. Well, their taste in music wasn't so bad. What they wear isn't so bad. I mean, it's just part of them. And it's just fine. So... Keeping yourself free of resentment and anger and being uh, as uh, neutral as possible when you see people as a whole is very important in keeping your perspective right. And seeing, having a holistic view of a person and a holistic view of people that came before you and a holistic view of the religion of your fathers. Uh, I know it's not easy, but it's pretty simple. Do you want to be judgmental? Do you want to be right about others? Or do you want to be free? Do you want to be happy? So that's my couple of takeaways from an excellent interview with Brian Stanford. And uh, very excited about the other Finding Hermes that will be coming out in the near future. I hope I can do more of these, but honestly, I don't know how these interviews are going or how the project is going. Something stirred with me. I wanted to help people, especially in 2020, although the insights or the gnosis came to me uh, probably December of 2019, but uh, Hermes stirred within me and I wanted to find my Hermes and I wanted to help you find your Hermes so you could walk through those doors. So I hope this is helping. Again, I have no idea. Leave some comments, uh, send me some messages, and I hope uh, I am inspiring you. I hope that I am finding, well, you are finding your Hermes, but that you are getting the information that you can walk through those doors and gain the ability to set all your cards on the table. So you can become transparent to the transcendent, as Joseph Campbell said, or as Mary Magdalene says in the Dialogue of the Savior, you can become transparent to the cosmic, because then you're free, and then you have nothing to gain and nothing to lose, because you are truly part of the all, and you truly know what your purpose is. So I hope you've enjoyed this Finding Hermes, and we will talk sooner than later. Keep walking through those doors.